Hey, welcome to the Crack House Chronicles. I am Donnie, your host, and I'm sad to say that Dale will not be joining me on this episode. He and his family have COVID, and they are hunkering down at home, but everybody's doing well. I've spoke to Dale over the last few days, and everyone is on the mend, but they're just riding it out at home. But Dale will be back probably the next episode, but just keep his family in your thoughts and prayers as they continue to get better. I'm going to forego all the shout outs and all the junk we talk about before we do an episode but like i said dale will be back and we talked about this episode and he insisted i go ahead and do it because we've had it scheduled and the person that i'm going to interview was so gracious to give us an interview so dale insisted i go ahead and do it so we're going to jump right into it but the person i'm interviewing this week is todd matthews and just a little bit of background on todd he is the co-founder of the Doe Network, and the former director of case management for NamUs. Todd was the first ever internet sleuth, I guess you would say, to solve a crime using the internet. He solved the Tent Girl case, which we're going to talk a little bit about this week and some other things that he's involved in. But we're just going to jump right into the episode. Welcome to the show, Todd. I'm happy to. I'm, I'm glad you're here. You know, I contacted you a couple weeks ago about doing this. I've I have been fascinated by Tent Girl for quite a while, and me and Dale, my sidekick, we were going to cover Tent Girl, but it's been covered a lot, and it's been in a lot of YouTube videos and different things made about it, and I just wanted to, I reached out to you to do this, because there's a lot of unanswered questions I have and misconceptions about her case. And, uh-huh. and if, if I can clear up some of these from the horse's mouth, man, that would be awesome. Well, I'll be happy to because, you know, there are certain things, if you, if you say something enough, it, gets, it becomes true in yeah. a sense. So uh, this gives me a chance because I can never cover it all unless somebody just is very specific and say, hey, what about that? So I'm, I'm happy to do this. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Uh, take us back to May of 1968. This was uh, your future father-in-law. Yes. Uh, uh, Wilbur Riddle. He had... He was out in Georgetown, Kentucky. Tell us a little bit about that, what was going on that day. So he was in Scott County, Kentucky, in a little town, Sadieville, just north of of Georgetown. So it's considered a a suburb of of Georgetown. And he actually met somebody because he was a well driller. He drilled water wells. So this is a time period before telephones, cell telephones. So you had to make an appointment. You just had to meet somebody somewhere Uh if you wanted to do something for him. And young kids can't wrap their mind around today like, well, why didn't he just call them? <laughs> well, there was a time that you couldn't just, just call somebody. That's what made this a little more complicated at the time. And uh, waiting for the guy to show up, he was just kind of looking at the glass insulators. They were putting, ironically, they were putting a new telephone line through the area, replacing some of the antiquated telephone lines, which later brought the Internet. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm pretty happy with that. Mm-hmm. And even back in the 60s, those, those blue-green glass insulators were even antique at that time. Oh, yeah, people still collect them today. And I, I've had a lot of people that have sent me insulators. I've <laughs> found some at flea markets, and, you know, that's become a little collector's item for me because it's just – just kind of ties in. I'm not a fanatic about it, but, uh, you know, if I see one, especially if I'm in Kentucky somewhere, I see one, it should just, you know, it's something you just kind of pick up if you can. Yeah. Not for the monetary value, but just, uh, you know, I'm finding insulators, so that's what he found. Yeah. But it, the old magazine article said that he painted them and sold them, and that's that's not true. I don't um, hmm. The original Master Detective magazine, they never actually interviewed him for that. This was something, you know, they it was it looked very embellished, and um, his name was Mark Cranston in the original magazine article. Okay. So, and he said they never really actually interviewed him at all. So, you know, they had to ad lib a lot of things. So, I, I think cleaning the insulators up for, to sell as antiques turned into painting them. So, I, I've never heard of anybody actually painting this type of uh, glass insulator. I've never heard of that either. So that that was just something, you know, I had a lot of people says, hey, they said they painted them. Why did they paint them? It's just like, to, my, to my knowledge, they didn't. Mm-hmm. Didn't then and don't now. So, um, but that's that's what he was doing at that scene. And, you know, he wasn't really expecting to find what he found that day. It was very unusual for that area. You mm-hmm. know, that general area and even here, it's fairly low crime back in the day. And if somebody was murdered, you know, you usually knew who I was involved in it fairly quickly. Yeah. So this was an anomaly in itself. 
being unsolved as that and it not being anybody local. Mm-hmm. So he was just, so, uh, he was just walking uh, along picking up insulators. Yeah, you know, just wasn't expecting to find anything like mm-hmm. that. So uh, that's sort of a life changing event for him as well, you know. And what he didn't know was it's gonna it's gonna change other people in his family's life for for decades. That was it's been twenty four years now since this month that uh, the identification of Kent Girl and here I am twenty. 24 years later, still having this telephone call tonight. Still yeah. clearing up things and, and discussing the case. Yeah. So he's just walking along and he, he finds a, a canvas. And I've, I've heard it in different different ways that some places says it's a, it was a tarp. Other places says it was a, a plastic tarp. So what exactly, well, what exactly was it? What he told me, it was a canvas tarp like material you know it was but it was a canvas tent wrapper so you know of course he didn't know at the moment that it was a tent wrapper but it yeah. turned out it was the type of wrapper that they store large you know commercial type tents and circus tents mm-hmm. and uh you know that was that was after the fact so it, at first i think it did look like a tarp to him yeah and i've heard him mention it call it a tarp so mm-hmm. that's he just thought maybe she was rolled up in that but it was a little bit more um so it was the canvas type material heavy heavy duty type and uh, a lot of people, I think, they're just uh, not sure about it, and they just call it a tarp. And I've heard some people call her tarp girl. Okay. And it's, you know, it's, it's definitely tent girl. Yeah. Okay. So when uh, this bag opened up, you know, he, he saw the body. Yeah, he nudged it uh, because, he, you know, it's kind of leaned up, kind of, kind of took him behind a tree and mm-hmm. uh, you know, curious as to what was in it. And he could tell by the way it was moving that there was something that was shifting. So it was something larger that was kind of connected. I don't think he really imagined it was very possibly a human at the time, but you know, he, he found out very quickly. He cut it open with his pocket knife and mm-hmm. uh, just enough to get the smell. And oh yeah. He, it was something horrible. So he, uh, he told, told his, the local sheriff that uh, he found a dead girl. And oh man. And that's how he referred to her forever. I found a dead girl one day. And, uh, you know, Tent Girl was something that kind of got baked in by other people, you know, yeah. as the news covered it. But, uh, you know, they came out, and it was unusual. They, You could see pictures of them from the past holding handkerchiefs over their nose. And Wilbur did see the body. Now, back in that day, there was no forensic anthropologist, as, as Kentucky was fortunate enough to have later on with Emily Craig. Um a lot of times the, the estimations was based on what they visually saw immediately. And mm-hmm. I did see a change from 13 to 16 to later, possibly 13 to 19 years of age. And I think that was after the actual autopsy, which still didn't have a forensic anthropologist, but a pathologist. So they determined she probably was a little older. But Wilbur told me this. Mm-hmm. He saw her body and he said that he saw that she had developed breast. Mm-hmm. and that she had red fingernail polish and the fingernails had been broken off. He said, I think the person was older. And there was a, a baby diaper, a cloth diaper. They didn't know what it was at the time. It was just a cloth towel, that's what they called it. But it turned out to be a baby diaper. So I'm thinking possibly this, this girl is much older. So I kind of went with what his assessment was. You know, he had many children. He had, throughout the course of his life, he had quite a bit of, of children. So... I think he was very aware of the physical characteristics of a person. So she was just small. She was just a small person. So yeah. I think the original thought was small person must be a child, and, it, and she wasn't. Yeah. And she did have a baby. She did have an infant. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm, something I was going to ask you, too, about that diaper. Because, yeah, they didn't think it was a diaper, or they didn't assume it was a diaper for a long time. Yeah, the FBI finally determined that, that it was a diaper from the Bird's Eye Diaper Company. Yeah. And they, they thought it was originally... And again, younger people don't remember when there was towels in a gas station that went around, rolled around. Oh you know? yeah, you, you know just... that dry, and you roll the same towel back around. And, <laughs> yeah, you know that was. And I remember seeing them. You don't see them anymore. But uh, that's when people are trying to imagine the tent girl and and the circumstances that led up to her being unidentified. It, it was a totally different world. No cell phones, uh, the te- uh, cloth baby diapers. Uh, a lot of things, you know, mm-hmm. were, were different back in the day. All right. Did, uh, how long after uh, when Wilbur discovered the body, how many years was it before you actually went out to the site where the body was found? 
So he found the body in 1968, May 17th, and I met Lori in October of 1987 here at my high school uh-huh. in, in Livingston, Tennessee. They had literally moved here. How they picked Livingston, Tennessee from northern Kentucky, unless he just threw a dart at a map. Uh, he just just sort of, you know, we're just inside of Tennessee, so it's you know, we're in the Tennessee, Kentucky area here, and uh, it was it was then that uh, when she first mentioned it during our, our class, we had study hall together, and I just recently got some insight onto this too. The first day that I substitute teached, I actually next door was the teacher that was our study hall teacher where Lori and I talked when mm-hmm. we first actually had a conversation. And I've been wanting to ask this guy this for 30, 34 years. I said, Mr. Smith, when we had that study hall and Lori and I met, knowing what a hardcore guy he was, yeah. I said, why did you, why were we free to do all of this during that time period? You know, we, you, you didn't make a study, you know, we kind of self-guided. He said, well, I figured you guys were old enough to study if you needed to study i didn't have any assignment i was watching you he said and this was supposed to be my planning period he's i've just i just wanted to make sure you guys were alive you know that's <laughs> that's all you know as long as you weren't burning the house down kind of left you alone if you didn't yeah. want to take the valuable time to study so that made sense to me mm-hmm. the next day that i substitute teach was at a different school and the room that i had was the actual room the study hall was in so there, there's just like a series of strange events, but these all brought some revelations back to me, things I've wondered about for years. And, uh, you know, I got to sit in that room as a teacher where Mr. Smith had sat and, uh, you know, just, just recollecting back on that time period and just looking back, the same ceiling, the same block walls are painted a different color, but it did kind of take me back to that time period. And I just felt like I could remember it better having sat there for eight hours. Yeah. So it was just a, it was interesting though, but it kind of filled in the gaps. I thought there's no way Mr. Smith would have let us sit there and done nothing but quietly talk and play cards. Mm-hmm. And now, now I understand he remembered clearly. Yeah. So how did Wilbur describe the area where tent girl was found? Well, it's off the road, and of course, a new highway was going in. You know, I seventy five was coming in as well, mm-hmm. a, a new section of it. So, it was more of a country road back in, and it still looks like a country road now when you go down. And it's probably not changed a whole lot. And if it's changed a lot, it was really rough back in the day. It's a really curvy road, and you know, it's just a place where you could pull over. You know, there was lots of pullovers mm-hmm. where if you needed to pull over and whatever, uh, meet up with somebody you could. And that's just really exactly what he did. And, you know, he's took me back to that place. In fact, the tent girl sister and I, since the road has changed the way the, the lay of the land there, she and I went back and based on what he's told us, what law enforcement's told us, we actually went back and dropped a pin, uh, to where we felt that was as close as possible to where her body was actually found, you know, and you know, it doesn't make it law, but it's, you know, we all agreed that, this was as close to the description as we could get. And we thought it was important to do that because, you know, eventually a lot of it's going to change and going back to the original spot is going to be impossible. Absolutely. But, you know, we have that pen where uh, if it's important to some people that come after us, uh, there's a shopping mall here now, but it's approximately this latitude and longitude is <laughs> as close as you can get to it. Mm-hmm. So they estimated her to be anywhere from about 110 to 15 pounds. And like you said, 16 to 19 years yes. old and yeah. that evolved over a period of time you know not not a long period of time but uh depending on what you read if you were going by the old newspaper articles you might have been looking at a younger time frame and mm-hmm. this is back in the day when things weren't digitized so the copy you had might have been the only information that you had and you know i think people went by that yeah uh, you couldn't email a report to different people and i think law enforcement could have been working from an older report even so maybe everybody didn't have the same set of data so mm-hmm. a jane doe could be described slightly differently uh brown and auburn you know brown hair auburn hair yeah which one was it uh you know and what's your opinion of it so a lot of uh physical descriptions based on a person's opinion yeah and their perception of it yeah exactly yeah so and you know and people don't figure that in you know that's that's still something important but i was able to think broadly enough at the time that uh there's this is a perimeter it's a guideline it's not a biblical fact that this and this happened but you know i really felt like what he said was uh i think this was a young woman possibly a young mother and you know my initial thought was should she be exhumed to see if she'd ever given birth to a child oh yeah and that was uh something i realized later couldn't be done you know due to the state of her remains i don't think they could 
be certain of it back in the day if they hadn't done it before audit for burial. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you, you do with what you have. But they were in the hole to begin with because she didn't have like any scars or identifying marks or piercings or anything, did she? Well, she had decay on her front tooth, and they kind of went with that. But that's something that could have appeared over a shorter period of time or not been described. But, mm -hmm. you know, without scars, marks, tattoos, piercings, something, you know, it's it's that's not a lot to go on. Yeah. You know, if they'd been a birthmark or uh, just some physical something, she was just the average girl. Was the decay on her front tooth the cause of the gap, or she had like it a was, little, little separation there, I think? There was a little separation. I think it was between the separation, you know, and never seeing a really clear picture of that decay. It's it's mm -hmm. hard to describe other than what I've read. Uh, yeah. There was some type of decay in the gap. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how bad it was, but I know she smiled a lot from the pictures that I saw, and I, I've not been able to see anything that looked bad in any yeah. of the pictures that I've seen. She's a beautiful girl. Yeah. So they did the autopsy, and they didn't find, like, no gunshot wound or anything like that. What would what did they determine as the cause of death? Well, there was a bruise on her skull. They mm -hmm. did notice that, and you know, could it have caused an immediate death? We don't we don't know. They just knows that there was a there was some type of inflammation on the skull area. So I don't think this caused her death. I think she was alive when she was put in the bag, and whether or not it was known that she was alive, mm -hmm. I don't know. I would I would hate to think that somebody thought he killed her and then decided he had to get rid of the body and then her not be dead. Yeah. So it's a, you know, a lot of things. You know, somebody can really appear to be dead or, in the heat of the moment, in a panic, try to figure out what to do. But I do know this: her husband did stay in that general area. He was in and out. He was in Williamstown, Kentucky, when he passed away. He had to have heard of the tent girl at some point during his life. So there's there's just no way he could have escaped knowledge of the tent girl yeah and he had to have known they wouldn't have done he, about it he had to have known i can't see any way that he wouldn't have known i mean t i mean she was just like a you know from the pictures i've seen she was just like a, a girl next door yeah just yeah, no sure. striking features or anything just you know just your average girl yeah it just you know she was um like you said the girl next door she's you know average and um you know she's a beautiful girl but she was just you know <laughs> Like a lot of other girls at that period of time, there was just nothing, nothing really striking, like bleached blonde hair or anything that made her stand out in particular. Yep. So, and so she went un unidentified. Yes. And, and they, they put her, in, they, they buried her. Yes. Tell us about the the marker, the headstone that they, that was created for her. Well, originally it was a lot, you know, number ninety was the original designation as where her body was. It was a grave 90 and i don't know if they ever really marked it or if that was just a uh, plot number 90. Mm -hmm. later on marvin yokum and i'm not sure who was part of it but he was a funeral home director and at the time uh at the time of the identification of tent girl he was a coroner of the county so uh, he had come full circle and run around too and they actually commissioned the tombstone for her that had the name tent girl and, and the description as best that they had at the time, hoping that, you know, we'll, we'll leave it in stone. Mm -hmm. Maybe with somebody a, will eventually see it with an etching of her composite, I guess, or whatever they thought she looked like from her yes. remains. It, and it was there. So that was, that was there for, you know, 30 years before there was any evidence found to point it toward an individual. So I guess it just remained cold for years. Like you said, well, I understood that law enforcement, up to 400 different police officers, did work on it over the years. And but you know, I, I think they had just the small amount of data that they had at the time. So I don't, other than the internet and you know the ability to search different records in different states, I don't think I did anything extraordinary that they wouldn't have done. Yeah. But I think by 30 years later, I think a lot of them had just decided it was unsolvable. It, they just decided it, it just couldn't be solved. Hmm. And if I'd known the odds. You know, <laughs> if I knew then what I know now, I might have given up before I even started thinking that it was just probably something that couldn't happen. Uh, you know, when I when I worked with NamUs and Doe Network, you know, I realized the challenge and how hard you have to work to identify some of these cases with the most modern tools. Um, you know, she was a long shot. Yeah, I just didn't know any better. I was I was young and dumb enough not to know any better than to try. Yeah, which sometimes is a benefit to people. You know. Uh, there's things right now I think, well, that's too big a challenge. I can't do that. 
Um, but if I, if I was naive enough to not know any better, you know, you might try. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's tell us a little bit about when, uh, you found out about tent girl, you were dating your, your wife. And yes, we were in the study home when Lori first mentioned it. It was October of 1987. We were telling ghost stories, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because it was Halloween. And Lori mentioned the tent girl, and, you know, maybe a way to impress me because I was usually the ringleader telling the ghost stories. And uh, <laughs> she, uh, it sounded so familiar to me. I thought that just sounds familiar. And Lori looked familiar <laughs> to me when I first saw her walk in the lunchroom. I didn't know I'd have study hall with her later that day. I told my best friend, I said, that's the girl I'm going to marry. Wow. And it wasn't because, uh, oh, my God, that girl. And she was a beautiful girl, but it wasn't the striking beauty that struck me. She was one of three sisters. They were like minions, you know, walking out of the, they were new girls, you know, so you recognized immediately they were not the girls that were there because it wasn't a very big school, but we all knew each other. Yeah. So they had just transferred there. And it's just like, it's just like somebody that I saw that I knew. Mm-hmm. I never have really been able to explain that. And, uh, you know, but it was during that time period, Lori told me about it and it just became an immediate fascination. Um, because I had a brother and sister that passed away at a very young, you know, they were infants. I knew where they were. I knew what their name was and I could read it on their headstone because mm-hmm. we were caretakers for the cemetery where they're buried. We actually have a deed to the, to the cemetery. It's an old family cemetery that had been there since the beginning of time. You know, with the tombstones that go all the way back. I remember asking my grandpa how long have we been buried here, and he said we started out in the cave at the bottom of the hill, <laughs> and that and that's a fact. You know, so in other words, a long time uh, ever since we started keeping up with it. That's that's where our family was was buried, and I probably would be buried there as well. But the fact that my brother and sister, I felt like at least I know. I don't like it, but at least I know where they're at. You had closure. You had closure on the whole. You had closure yeah, on I them. Did. Yeah, I mean, you're never really happy. Like, you know, it's, it's hard to uh, accept a death, but you do have to accept it. Mm-hmm. And I thought they've not even had a chance to even know that she's dead. They're only half knowing. Yeah. And I never could get the mindset that uh, her family knew where she was. I just didn't care. I thought I just I just can't fathom that being true. Yeah, that's always just, fascinating me too, because you know, a missing person or an unidentified person, you know, what? Yeah, there's just there's just no way. Yeah. I could imagine that, uh, you know, and people, you know, that was speculation. Maybe your family just don't care for her. And it being an adult, you know, made it easier for him to assume that it was of her own free will. Mm-hmm. And he did tell her family that she left with another man. So that was always a possibility, they thought. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not something they thought was in her characteristic. And, you know, they certainly thought she would have contacted them. But there wasn't a lot of alternatives back in the day. So, uh, you know, they had to accept what they accepted, live on with their lives. Uh, you know, they had children. And yeah. they didn't even meet Barbara's children until much later. When Earl Taylor was dying in 1987, he told his daughters how to find Barbara's family. And they met shortly after that, and that was in 1987. So they eventually found each other. So together, two halves of the family come together, and they were collectively trying to find uh, Barbara. Yeah. And that was a good thing. They were starting to digitize things. You know, they had a document called the Bobby Doc, and it was like everything they collectively knew about her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what happened to the children after, you know, where they were. So at least they were straight on, here's what happened to who and when. Yeah. And that was always good. And, you know, that was the trail I was kind of looking for. It was uh, somebody has to say something about it. And the Internet was so new back in. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing young people don't understand, everything wasn't on the Internet back in the day. It, you could go and find nothing. It was just like business cards, basically, a static website um, with just a little bit of information and nothing, you know, like the videos and uh, graphics that we see today. Yeah, it was only as good as what was put on there. Oh, yeah. You know, it's... Um, and it's just very slim amount of data. You know, I spent years watching the Internet grow after I got online. Uh, you know, I first heard the information superhighway. I thought, hot dog, this is it. I'm going to – I'll find her that way. And very disappointing with the early Internet. It's like, mm-hmm. geez, it ain't here. You know, this, what I'm looking for is not here. And I was young enough not to realize that why would it be there? You know, I just – again, uh, not knowing any better. Mm-hmm. And just it just keep trying. Uh, so I did. I put everything I knew about the tent girl online. So I made her a missing persons file in reverse, sort of like a be on the lookout for this person. 
You know, this is this is all we know about Tent Girl. Everything collaterally that we know from different sources, this is what we know as a universal truth with Tent Girl. Yeah. Put that out, and I thought, okay, somebody will see it, and they'll call me. I didn't. You got nothing. I got nothing. So, again, I'm frustrated, and you go back to the searches. And, you know, it was a website called Crane and Hibs, and it's what, you know, very reminiscent of what you'd see with Craigslist today. Yeah. So everything was on it. I mean, everything, anything for sale, trade, uh, lost loves, everything. It was on that website. And it come up in a search engine function search. It popped up. I saw missing sister. So they have more than one note on that website and they'd pinned them in a lot of different places, you know, just different inquiries about missing Barbara Taylor, Barbara Hackman. And, uh, I found Rosemary's first, which was her sister. That was the first one I found. And last known to be alive, December 7th, 1967 in Lexington. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and a description of her. And I thought that was the first time I found a missing person that I thought could be her. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's like a needle in a haystack. And I thought that's her. And I was sure it was her. I felt it immediately that it was her. Um, I had no idea what was coming next. You know, mm-hmm. it was that the next challenge was, uh, you know, and then you're thinking that night it's her. Oh, I'll meet the family. Oh, they'll dig her up. Oh, they'll, They'll change the tombstone. We'll we'll lose our urban legend here. You know, you thought of all the repercussions, you know, the consequences of what you've done and, you know, what was going to happen next. You know, it was Pandora's box had been opened. Mm-hmm. Me thinking now, now what am I going to do with it? You know, what am I supposed to do? Uh, you know, I talked to Rosemary and we did decide that it was a very good possibility. The good thing is I had a Jane Doe profile online. So I had, I can't even describe to tell you this, but I believe your sister is an urban legend in Kentucky, which would be striking. And here is what I have. So literally I just gave her the link to the website and said, go look for yourself. I, it's more than I can even possibly tell you. Yeah. And you know, it was, it was overwhelming. It was a lot to talk about, but I feel like if I didn't have that to show her, I'm not sure how much, you know, it could, it could have sounded like a horrible fairy tale, Yeah. but I had enough to make them feel very compelled that this very well could be her and rosemary was able to communicate it to the rest of their family as well so at least she had uh, you know they had the bobby document on their side telling about barbara this was the first digitized jane doe case that had ever been put online it was there and they had it so it was a really good point of reference for them and i contacted the sheriff i had my sister-in-law in scott county she still lived in scott county and she contacted the sheriff Sheriff uh, Bobby Hammonds, mm-hmm. and you know he's still alive. He's, he's getting up there in years, but uh, it took him a day or two to call me back, and he basically told me the reason I'm calling you back because he, he didn't think it was possible that somebody had solved the Tinker case. But the courtesy was, it was your father-in-law that found her, and I'm going to give you the courtesy of a callback to hear you out, you know. And he did, and he said, uh, "By grab, I think you found her." And I remember him saying that, you know, wow. he's southern like I am, so. We had the same Southernisms, and uh, <laughs> I knew exactly what he meant. He was really happy. And the next thing I know, I got a phone call from the forensic anthropologist, Emily Craig, and uh, photographs were flying. Uh, for the first time, we were attaching photographs to emails. Yeah. I'd never done that before. That was that was all new. We were attaching these things and sending them and putting people in contact. And uh, it was just, and in just this time of year, 24 years ago, it was just an emotional from from January all through to the point that we had final positive identification, it was months of just chaos, yeah. you know, just uh, ups and downs. What if there's not enough DNA? What if we can't, what if the remains are degraded? What if the body's not even there now? What if she's completely gone? There's uh, nothing left. so yeah. much, you know, it just, it was so, and I was missing a lot of work because every time there was an opportunity to go to Kentucky, because 48 hours had gotten involved in it, a lot of news media got involved in it. And, you know, you, you want interviews. Mm-hmm. I mean, people want to do interviews with you just to find out what the hell are you doing? You know, yeah. why are you doing this? What's this all about? And uh, and I worked at a factory at the time. You know, it, was, it wasn't a very high paying job, but I, I think I'd worked my way up into quality control by then. And, uh, and this was, you know, 1998. And uh, there was, to the point where I'd missed enough work for you point out finally, you know, the factory where I worked at, they were happy enough that this was going on because they were seeing local bits and pieces and even local newspapers here. They're very pleased with it. But the fact of the matter is you miss so many points. You, you don't, you point out. So there got to a point in time where I had to decide, uh, do I step on this platform 
what will this platform bring to me? Do I tell my own story? Do I let somebody else tell this story? What if I lose my job? Uh, what if, what if, what if? You know, you didn't know. There was a point that a young person's having to decide that's going to affect the rest of their life. And luckily, fate made that decision for me. Yeah. I woke up one day. Uh, it was right in the middle of trying to decide of the next trip to Kentucky and was I going to be part of it? You know, you're, you're either there to tell your story or somebody else tells the story their own way. It could have took a drastically different turn. I woke up paralyzed on one side of my face and we had, you know, I went to the local doctor and he said, you got Bell's palsy. Mm-hmm. Well, he might as well have said cerebral palsy because I'd never heard of it at the time. And I, I thought, Oh God, I'm dying. He goes, no, no, it's, it's an inconvenient, but a temporary condition. Well, that put me on a medical leave long enough to finish what I had to finish with Tent Curl. And even some of the films, some of the interviews that we did, it was done from one side where you couldn't tell that the other side of my face was paralyzed. Uh, just so we wouldn't have to further explain that, you know, that happening. But it, it was definitely the stress of all of that worry. Everything had come to boil to a head that caused me to be physically ill as a result hmm. of it, trying to figure it out. But that's exactly what I needed. But- Everything that seems like such a horrible tragedy or thing comes back to to pay you back uh to have taught you something or to give you another opportunity even the death of my brother and sister i think can't change that but it gave me enough wisdom to actually not be so put off by jane doe it wasn't so repulsive or so horrific that i couldn't process it was normal to me uh you know for somebody i already had a dead brother and sister even a very young age I was used to it. Yeah. So it wasn't something like, I didn't want to think about that. You know, like a lot of young people would want to do. They don't want to think about the realities of life. I had to. You know, I had no choice. So I think that's, even all of those things made things different. So a lot of different things, it seems like individual tragedies turned out to be a collective part of something that was that was actually some good came out of it. Yeah, but not only that, d- during your quest to find out who Tent Girl was, I mean, it actually... If your marriage suffered for a while and you had other things going on too i mean i've read that you know you were so involved with this you know your wife was you know telling you you know maybe you need to slack up or something or oh yeah and it's not that Lori didn't have any compassion for her but you know it's like Lori's Lori's i've heard Lori say tell two different stories i have she said i knew he would find her but another way she'll say I didn't think it was possible and she she further explained it to me recently she said i fully believed that you believed that you would find her and send her home. I just didn't know if it was possible, but mm-hmm. I know that you believed it with all your heart. And she said, I didn't know what that was going to do to you later. If it was indeed impossible, but you didn't believe it, when were you going to come to terms and accept that you couldn't find her yeah. and, and what would happen to you if you didn't find her? And I'd hate to think uh, of where I'd be right now if I didn't, didn't find that one note. Uh, my life could be drastically different another way. Yeah. You know, but back in the day, some of the arguments would be because we were making like minimum wage. And another thing that kids don't understand now is telephone calls used to cost something. So up to 15 cents a minute. So you get a phone bill that's racked up where you've made phone calls inquiring and, and getting nothing from it, but just a conversation that ended in nothing. You know, that added up. Yeah. You know, so there was a price to pay. You know, uh, financially, there was a lot of money driving the scene you know you could always work in a family trip but you know i'm thinking no this is a chance to stop by the graveyard or, or go find where where he found the body hoping that something was going to spark something and of course law enforcement never really had any interest in seeing the grave in particular but i did i did have interest in it because i felt like it was bringing me closer to uh, her and and giving me a little drive to go forward you know being physically there made me realize this is real this mm-hmm. is real this is a real person laying there, just like my brother and sister. It's real. So, you know, I think that helped reinforce me to keep going forward. When you go to somebody's grave, you think, yeah, this is this is a real thing. You know, and if I give up on her, what will happen? Yeah. So, you know, it reinforced the fact that you needed to keep going. And I think that always helped Lori, too. We went there, and she's seen how it was. And But, you know, the price of uh, long-distance phone calls, it was a big impact. We literally, and we didn't tell this to much later, because of that and some of the things we've done, we literally ended up filing a bankruptcy. Wow. Over It was that that strapping. And, and looking back at it, that obsessive, uh, it, it seems like I had success. But what if I hadn't have found her when I found her? What ruin would I have continued on into? 
So it wasn't like I was a brilliant person that walked right into it. Uh, I was on a bad path that if I hadn't found what I was looking for, how far would I have gone? Hmm. Would it have ended up in a divorce? I don't know. It could have, you know, because you can only, you can only get so much blood out of a turnip. That's true. It's finally like, you know, there's a point where you have to say, I would have had probably had to face the giving up or ratcheting it way down or something before the end. You know, I would have had to. So it was a miracle to, to get that relief. And then what seemed like another tragedy, like all this cost on our family, you know, it began to be worth it. And then the opportunities that brought up, I remember one of the police officers in Kentucky said, do you know what you've done? And it sounded like such a firm voice. Uh, it was almost like telling you you done something wrong. You know, it said you changed everything. And it's like, I didn't know what he meant. I had no idea. I thought, okay, I was thinking of a single case. It became very apparent right after that because other law enforcement were calling me individually. We have a Jane Doe or we have a missing person. Uh, can you put it on this newfangled platform called the Internet? You know, because they didn't have websites. They didn't have email addresses mm-hmm. for the most part, law enforcement. Um, I didn't know this is the beginning of cyber units. You know, this this really got law enforcement's interest. So for a while, I was the go-to person, you know, which led to the development of Doe Network, a bunch of us coming together, uh, which I worked alone on Tent Curl, but then suddenly I realized there's other people. So Tent Curl was that flare that shone out into the night that, that helped us come together, you know, when everybody realized this person did this. Um, you know, we all started coming together as a community then, and Doe Network was born. And law enforcement was like, hey, can you do this? Can you do this? We were the cyber union. We was the cyber unit. This tent girl was the first time the internet had ever been done. You know, essentially I've become the first web sleuth. Yeah, you were, you were the, you were the first, no doubt about it. I didn't know that. That wasn't my goal. (laughs) You know, but then suddenly you have a new title that, okay, now what are you going to do with that? Yeah. And uh, okay. uh, I guess we'll see. Then there came a period of time where they were continuing to develop their cyber units and there were online presence for law enforcement, you know, and they began doing some of their own work instead of relying on, civilian volunteers to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it it became like and it was a good thing because you know just a handful of people can't handle the mass volumes of missing and unidentified it would be impossible you know for 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 them to do it so the fact that they went back that just brought more materials to the volunteer community in a, in a better pace you know at first it was like we felt useless because now they're doing it themselves they don't need us anymore but then it provided more material so everything's evolving so every time it looks like this is the death of life as we know it. Suddenly it's like, ah, oh, but now we can evolve and do this. You know, what I didn't know, Tent Girl was my college. Yeah. They didn't know that, you know, and thank God. It seems like at the end of every long, hard path, it just, you know, not expecting something. It's like, okay, here's, here's, here's your life now because of this. And it's like, wow, cool. That's, I, I did not expect that. And I think if you go into it not expecting something, I think, I think that's really you can you can be more pleased with what comes of it. You know, it was a, an honor and a privilege to be able to go on and use that platform to try to help other people be resolved. And I never wanted to be the single person to solve the cases after that. I like the idea of it. If we all work together, you gave me the case information. I put it on the Internet. This one shared the link. This reporter wrote a newspaper article and collectively we all work together make this happen and we did that with tent girl too but we were 30 years apart like one of the uh, notes in the master detective magazine was we hope that one of our readers will someday come forward and identify the tent girl it was me Mm -hmm. in a magazine that my father-in-law carried around for decades uh and it wasn't meant for me at the time it was meant for somebody in 1968 it just happens that within his own family and i wish my father-in-law could have been prouder of that I don't think he understood it. He was already getting up in years when it was happening, you know, so I don't think he understood exactly how I conjured up the name of Tent Girl out of this box, you know, so he never, he never was a person that dealt with the internet or anything like that. So I think it was all so so much of an anomaly to him. He didn't understand it. Yeah. But uh, if he could have been prouder that he was one of the spokes in the wheel, he carried that story to Tennessee, which ultimately ended up with me. And I think Lori was probably unknowingly one of the most important people, you know, None of this would have happened without her. I mean, she happened to end up in the classroom that I was in and spoke something at the right time and took me back and asked her dad to show it to me. You know, she lit the she lit the fire. Lori really did. Well, good. And the fact that she was a she was a beautiful girl, still is a beautiful woman, um, 
you know, that, that, was, that was just icing on the cake. You know, I thought, I got a mystery and this beautiful girl, and we feel like we're meant to be together. We'll have been married 34 years this year. Congratulations. Our 34th year. So that's, that's awesome. a long time. Yep. So let's talk about when uh, Barbara had left and she had moved in away with Earl. And, they so, had- and that was, you know, he, she actually was babysitting. He had a daughter that her, you know, it would become her stepdaughter at okay. some point in time. So she was babysitting for her and ended up marrying somebody that was a lot older than her uh, against her family's better judgment and then having children with him as well. So mm-hmm. uh, I think the stepdaughter very much considers Barbara her mother. Yeah. You know, because that was the last mother and she remembers her better than her younger siblings did. She remembers her. So better than they can. And that was and in 1967 too. Yes. And, yes. Her name's Bonnie Carpenter. She lives in uh, Ohio. Um, mm-hmm. Still, you know, I see them from time to time and we're in, con- you know, frequent email or Facebook contact. You know, if I see a story, I always try to share it with them. If we see something, it's like, ah, oh, it's not really entirely accurate. You try to clear it up and, uh, you know, and sometimes I don't see that they get enough credit for the thing they done. It just it just simply wasn't just Todd Matthews solved this case. They put things out there and they could have just as easily have found my stuff as I found their stuff. So I really feel like they were a huge, huge part of putting something out there for me to find yeah. in the first place. It's just a matter of who found who first. I think one of the shows said that uh, both both sides were online and they were about to collide. And <laughs> sure enough, we did. Yeah. You know, and, and they feel like family. You know, I, I do consider them family. And when we were planning the funeral of the tent girl, you know, they treated me very much, you know, like somebody that was related to her. They took into consideration that, you know, I can't just let you have her, you know, with everything. I can't just turn it completely over to you. She's still very important to me, too, you know. So she's still, she's my story, too. We have two highs of a story, and together we have a whole story. And, you know, to tell it together is always really important and to get their side of it. But, um, yeah, it was just. That's great. I'm just thinking back on it right now. It's just like it was yesterday. Yeah, some of these things. It is. But Earl was working for a carnival. Yes, he was a carnival worker, so he did have access. So, as I was talking to Rosemary, and we were going through some of this stuff, you know, her idea of oh, I, I know where that bag came from. It made sense, you know. So that was a, uh, you know, for me that was like ah. Mm-hmm. You know, so now now we know. So that filled in a lot of gaps yeah. you know, for me. For me, it's just like a programming error. Like data's not available. Must find data. Must put it in. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just that click. So what I did was gather, sort, and then share. And, you know, and that concept carried on into Doe Network. And later on, that concept shared went into NamUs when they asked me to be part of NamUs. It was trying to create a common description of a person that everybody went through as this is the one, this is the official story of this Jane Doe or John Doe. This is, this is the one we're all going to go by. We'll all drink from the same well and, and try to, you know, the collective of people working was finally possible. And we weren't working in individual bubbles with fragmented pieces of data. It was all together. Mm -hmm. And communications was the biggest issue was we weren't all sharing information with each other. And back in the day, we couldn't, uh, now it's like, Maybe sometimes we just don't. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about when uh, Barbara disappeared or he had early told the the kids that she just run off with another man. Yes. And they were young. Of course, you know, we're talking about under four. Yeah. So, so they, they'll just pretty much believe anything somebody tells them. They had to. Now, Bonnie remembers uh, arguments. You know, in particular, she remembers them having arguments from time to time. So as she got older and more mature, you know, her mind led her to believe like maybe there was something wrong mm-hmm. or maybe it's a justification of why she ran away. Like, well, if she did run away, but the sense of abandonment was something that didn't make sense to him because she had been so loving to her. You know, yeah. she had accepted her as a daughter. So them trying to process, why did she leave? Did she leave? You know, and that changes over the years. Mm-hmm. The first year, you're thinking, well, maybe. But they had to process the fact, mommy's gone. So that was that was important to them at first. And then it's like, did she leave as they got more mature? And then when they become mothers themselves, you know, you have to think about it. What would it have took to took her away from these children? Yeah. And I remember turning that age. I remember uh, 
at certain points in my life becoming the same age as a person that was in the story like when my father-in-law found the body, which I think he was in his 40s at the time, becoming that age, being a father and now a grandfather, you look at things a totally different way. Oh, I'm sure. But during all this time, there were a, a couple girls that went missing that they thought was Barbara. There yes, was, there was one in particular from Maryland that, uh, you know, and a lot of it's just any missing person, mm-hmm. uh, girl missing, you know, when it, you know, it happened, but I mean, to hear about them. So I think there was a lot of times they figured that it could be like, there's a missing girl out of Virginia. Could it be our tent girl? And then they look at it and it's like the physical description is like, oh no, there's no way. Mm-hmm. Uh, one actually showed up alive. She was fine, you know, so none of them panned out, you know, and they started becoming fewer and far, farther between. You know, that was the initial any missing person. Like now we can go online and read the missing person's report, look at the description and, you know, come to a conclusion much quicker. Yeah. And then it was a matter of you're going to make phone calls. Somebody may have to drive up here. Can we get photographs that we have to physically mail to somebody or, or carry them to them? You know, there was a lot more physical things that are done automatically now. That mm-hmm. are standard operating procedures now, you know, and, and if you're not a, you know, like my local law enforcement agency here in Livingston, Tennessee, we don't have a missing persons unit per se. Uh, we don't have a unit that deals specifically with unidentified bodies. We don't have any unidentified bodies here. There are none in this general area. There's none. Yeah. And the missing persons are usually shorter term cases that are uh, quickly resolved. We have a couple that are ongoing. We've had a couple that's been solved in recent months when their vehicle was found that submerged in water after 20 some odd years. And, you know, and to know that they're missing, there's no way to find them among the unidentified dead, even though I did try. You know, I did look to see if they could have been. There was no way to find them among the unidentified dead if the car in which they were lost in had not been found. Yeah. So, and that makes me think of Tent Girl. You know, I think of this, seeing these cases, like all the hours put in scouring, matching the missing to the unidentified, it was not possible to compare and find them among the dead because they were never counted among them. They were never represented as a John or Jane Doe. So I had to think of the Tent Girl with that. What if, what if the sisters and the mother and the sisters of the Tent Girl, what if they hadn't put something online about her? How long would I have to look? Yeah. There was no real missing persons report that I could refer back to that was online anywhere. Hmm. There wouldn't have there wouldn't have been a way to uh, shake hands with one hand. Yeah. So there was a lot of factors that had to be in place before that could happen, you know. And you truly begin to respect that when you step back. And I started working with NamUs and Doe Network, and you realize all of these little pieces that have to go into it to, to think that we got just the right amount to allow us to put all this together was. That in itself was a miracle, not our efforts so much as it was the availability of the data and yeah. the fact that it come along in just the right time. So Earl, he was the number one suspect of uh, Barbara's murder, but he, uh, like, he died of cancer in, what, 87? Yes. I mean, and, you know, and I don't think they even realized that he died the month and year that I met Lori, October of 1987. So it's like... When he left the story, I started into the story. So it's just like there was a transition there. So mm-hmm. there was definitely a change in, in the way things were done, but not knowing of each other. You know, we didn't know of each other. And and him giving the dirt girls enough information, he knew he was on his way out. There was nothing he could lose. He didn't tell them about Tent Curl or what happened to their mother, but he at least gave them enough information to connect with the family, probably knowing good and well that they could eventually figure this out. Yeah. You know, so, but I mean, I think that was his last uh, charitable deed was to, to give them at least enough information that they could find their family. But the selfish side was it wasn't going to happen in his lifetime. Yeah. So you don't want really to thank somebody or curse them for it. It's like, wow, you, the years you could have spared me. He just simply could not afford to put those people together and risk after all those years. Finding out. Going to jail for it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was it was very very selfish reason why he yeah. never came. And he so, never he never reported her missing. No, no, the family did try to, but it was it, missing persons was very difficult back in that time. Mm-hmm. I think she was actually reported locally in in Florida, but I don't think you know back then you don't go online and uh, you know there's a report that goes into a drawer and you know it just it's just a different thing. And the family did actually call. Kentucky at least one point over the years. I think Rosemary said she spoke to an officer and, you know, of course they weren't looking for a Jane Doe. They were looking for a missing person that could still be alive, possibly using that name in Kentucky. 
Mm -hmm. So, you know, they had uh, the possibility of her being a Jane Doe, just, I think just really hadn't occurred to them. Yeah. So where, go ahead. I'm listening. Oh, that's all right. I just, just, just go ahead. There's just a little bit of a lag. So I don't want to cut you off. Yeah. So tell us where Barbara is buried now and tell us what they did to the, her headstone and changed her name and all that stuff. So now she's buried in Georgetown Cemetery, as she has been since 1968. And the original tombstone, of course, it had her likeness and her height, weight, just a description, best they could do. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, you know, they wrote it in stone. It's not just on paper. It's wrote in stone. And I'm glad they did that because that itself was a physical, like, wow, this is real. If I hadn't seen a grave, I don't know how real it would have been to me. Yeah, it, That really helped me a lot. So after she was identified, uh, that stone had already become such an iconic part of that community. You know, just like it can't just be tossed aside. And the family ultimately decided to bury her back there because she was collectively close to all of the family members. Some were in different states. And, you know, she was, you know, where where would we move her to in particular? So they decided to leave her there, which made me feel better, too, because that was normal for me, too. So I I was glad I didn't have to lose her. And I think it was good for the community had taken such good care of her and showed her such great respect. It was like, you know what? She's been here for 30 years. She can stay here because she can't be among anybody else that would love her anymore and have done any more for her. Um, they added a section to the tombstone with her name, her real name. And it's just a section. It's just in between the top and bottom of the original stone. You know, And to see that, to me, that's a physical embodiment of, that whole thing that stone represents everything that we went through to put that stone in there that that so is that is a signi- signification of closure right there it, it is to me that it, that's like a big giant award you yeah. see that there that's that's like your that's your golden globe right there uh you know it's you're, you can see it and you see a physical representation of the effort and it's not just in your imagination you put the two people together in your mind they physically did it with stone and yeah. uh it just makes sense. And they didn't erase the fact that she was once known as Tent Girl. It's just, they just added to the story. Yeah. I love it that they did it that way. And it was just so important to go and see that. It's still uh, still inspirational for other people that have a missing person to go see that. You know, we always said it's never, ever too late. Yeah. Never, never give up, you know, because you never know. Um, and I look at it like this. If we can't solve a case right now, there's, there's a lot of cases like I'm not going to try to solve everything. Lori asked me one time, do you want to save the world? And I thought, yeah, yeah, I, I would love to. I'd love to save this world. But you realize that you're not going to be around long enough to see closure in all these cases. The other body that was buried in Scott County from 1921 was a boy that was struck by the train, and he was called some mother's son. And I saw his grave there, too. Mm-hmm. The first time I saw his grave, I was 17. I helped rebury him next to his mother at 47. That was a 30-year journey. So, I mean, in a human lifetime, how many tent girls can you have and and go through that entire process? So, for me, helping develop things like Doe Network and NamUs was important because let's put everything we have here and hope to God that somebody else will take this um, time capsule and, and take it where it needs to be. So, being part of the process, if not the ultimate solution, is enough. You know, yeah. you have to find a way. Am I am I happy with this? Did I do all I can do? And it's yes. With the technology you have today, you did everything you possibly could have done, not knowing the rest of the circumstances. You you archived it, you documented it, and you put it online and you shared it with the world. And today, Todd, you are you've laid the groundwork for future generations to carry on this work later down the road. And well, it, and again, I didn't know it at the time. It was uh, I was trying to take care of something that it was personal to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and then understanding the way that I understood my brother and sister had passed away and, and giving her back to her family, you know, knowing the greater good it would have done just did not occur to me at the time. That That's something I had to realize later. And then when you look back and realize it, it's like, OK, I guess I got to own this now. You know, you're you're considered an architect of, of a certain thing now. It's just like, OK, you better put on your big boy britches because this is who you are now. This mm-hmm. is what people expect of you. You know, I couldn't just be a. And an uneducated redneck, it just did whatever it wanted to, deer hunting, bold, and, you know, just led a normal life. It's just like, okay, this is, this is you made yourself this. Yeah. you got to own it. This is what you have to be. And, you know, not that I didn't want to be, but it's like, how do I be? And and can I live up to the expectations other people have for me? You know, because a lot of people say, well, this is brilliant. It's not, no, it wasn't brilliant. It was 
common sense, try to do the right thing and having compassion for people and timing, you know, and the absolute timing. A lot of things come together in time. But, you know, people had an expectation like I can fix this. And then it's just like, you know what, I have to find out, figure out a way to fix it. Yeah. You know, because, you, you know, people think highly of you. It's just like, well, I got, I've, I've got to go to a higher standard. You know, this is what people expect. And I never want people to have one idea of who you are and then they meet you and they're very disappointed. Hmm. So you have to kind of live up to, to what life is giving you. you yeah. Know? So keep, keeps you out of prison, I guess. So. <laughs> I guess so. So Todd, tell us, uh, what are you up to now? What projects are you working on and, and trying to solve? So, well, now my timing time is coming on with NamUs. You know, I served a little over 10 years as director of communication and case management. Uh, now I am more of a freelance person and I have just as many calls as the former director of case management communication. It's just kind of like you see somebody that was the former director of such and such on CNN or, or Fox News and now they're a commentator on it. I feel like I'm a commentator as somebody that sat in that role for a long time. So I continue that. I get calls daily, calls or emails daily uh, to give a comment on a specific case in a certain area. Uh, you know, just any, any type of... Uh, anecdotal comment that you can make is this case unusual in your experience no it's not unusual you know you're given hopefully you're giving it enough of something to to help people focus on it really well mm -hmm. and uh when i left namus i did get a call from morgan freeman's production company revelations entertainment of course this is right about the time covid was hitting and everything was restricted and and you know i've had a number of you know a dime a dozen producers that have contacted me over the years like this should be on television i've done a number of uh documentaries uh, one we won a, a, an emmy for and that was the dead unknown and it's on prime amazon prime and you can see that it was meant to be just a news piece and it turned into a four-part documentary series that was uh and again when we were doing it i didn't know it was going to be a documentary series but that led us to the possibility of television and morgan freeman was probably the biggest fish that approached me somebody that could actually get it done this is not let's just pitch something see if it sticks this is somebody that approached me with their production company. Let's make this happen. COVID, of course, did hurt things. And ultimately, we've landed on a podcast. And, you know, they, you know, we did the pitches to the different podcast platforms. And iHeartRadio did say we want we want to develop a show with Todd and with Revelations Entertainment. Mm -hmm. And I think we're getting really close to actually begin production on that. Uh, I'm not even sure what we're going to name it. Uh, the nickname now is a Toddcast. The Toddcast. So, uh, oh. Very cool. You know, that, that's just what that's just what they call it right now. But it will it will have a specific name at some point. And, you know, one of my requests is if if it's Morgan Freeman's company, I'd like for him to do the intro. Oh, you know, yeah. You can't get any better than that. No, I mean, I mean his voice alone is going to be something that's going to get people's attention. You know, So if you're going to be introduced, I'd like to be introduced by Morgan Freeman. And I think we can do a lot of good things because now is a time that uh, I feel like, you know, at 51, I feel like it's time to start telling some of these stories. You know, yeah. because you're, you're getting to a different stage of life. I'm not ready to check out or anything. But now that I have grandchildren, you know, uh, like your priorities change. It's like, well, I better start telling these stories or, or they may never be told. Some of the cases that I worked on with NamUs and, you know, that were done kind of behind the scenes, never really had a chance to fully describe. Well, here, here's here's what kind of happened. You know, there was a news article or a, a press release that went out and said this was solved using this technology. But, you know, like, okay, but here is the rest of the story because I still think there's stories that can be told that will inspire people. And it's things I could do that I couldn't do really while I worked for the Department of Justice. It wouldn't have really been appropriate to, uh, you know, people usually write the book when they leave their government office. They, they kind of do that. So I feel like if I'm smart, that's what I'll do. It's time for me to uh, proverbially write the book and, and start telling these stories of, Here's here's how these things come together, and I'm looking forward to starting the podcast. It has been delayed tragically long because of COVID, and uh, you know, which has been very disappointing. But it gave me time to grow into the idea of it. In the meantime, I've been teaching school. I've been uh, working as a substitute teacher for so many years. I would end up, you know, being uh, a person that would go give a forensic lecture at school. You know, so or, or on career day, I would go tell them about all the ologies. Because forensic science was an important, uh, a, a big goal for a lot of kids nowadays. But you have to tell them about the ologies and where can you work and what to expect realistically from that type of job and, you know, what you can realistically be expected to be paid and, you know, just to get an idea of that. Well, when COVID came along, it made it impossible for outside speakers to come in. Mm -hmm. So as I become a substitute teacher, 
very comfortable in the classroom. Uh, there was times that I'm a substitute teacher because now you can actually get paid for it. And I can go into the schools because I am part of the county school system. So I, I can go in and, and be the forensic lecturer if they want. And sometimes it's just as simple as I've done this week. I helped the kindergarten class get through the week and everybody went home alive. That's awesome. So, and I love to do that. And that keeps it current too. It keeps you seeing people. It keeps you focused on, you know, why, why we want to do good things. Um, you know, so, and it's in the kids at the end of the day, uh, somebody gives you a hug and thanks you for being there with them or, and that just, you just, they grow on you. They really do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a lot of the pay right there. It comes out in a, maybe you made a difference in that kid's life, you know, whether you told them the forensic side of thing or you just listened to them. So it's, it's a good balancing thing. And besides all of these kids K through 12, uh, hopefully one day they'll be listening to my podcast as well. So, uh, you know, the high schoolers have been hearing me on podcasts like yours. They'll come in and say, Hey, I heard you on a podcast last night, or they were talking about you on the, my favorite podcast. And that's just great to hear. And lately I have started, uh, you know, I did who killed Jane Doe. Mm-hmm. And there was a couple that played me and Lori when we were younger. So two actors, you know, actor and actress came in and they were us. And I thought that looked really interesting. So I have been <laughs> guest appearing on some shows because I film a lot of them in Knoxville or Nashville, very close by, like Snapped, uh, uh, Storm of Suspicion, Exhumed. So I've actually been on some of these shows as an actor. And I think people are surprised. Like I was watching Exhumed. And you were the murderer in that. And it's sort of like little cameo appearances. They know you for one thing, and then suddenly they see you on another crime show. Yeah. And it, it's been pretty cool. And there's a film coming up called Mothman 2022, and I'm going to play a cryptozoologist. And that's this year in that film. It's not a big budget film. It's something, but they, they really do. I'll send you the trailer for it so you can get an idea, but it revolves around a missing person case around the time period of the Mothman and, uh, you know, that the fact that it was a missing person's case that was being the central focus of that particular movie, that's what drew my interest. Because I'm going to try to stay in the genre that I'm that I'm part of already. Yeah. It's missing, unidentified. So anytime I can loop into some of these things, if I can, if it'll help glue things together or you get a chance to get people interested. And I've been working on state law that requires the use of NamUs in several states. Several states have actually passed a state law that in a certain period of time, if you're missing an unidentified or unidentified, uh, you must go into the NamUs database because it's voluntary. Yeah. And this this past year, we passed a resolution in Tennessee to kind of boost that state law uh, by compelling medical, I mean, uh, medical care providers like dentists and somebody that might do a knee replacement, orthopedics, that if they have a missing patient, it is okay for you to step forward and say, hey, guys, I have the dental records for Joe Smith if you need them. And that might actually get them into a database a lot quicker because we don't always know where to find these records. We don't necessarily know that you had a knee replacement. Uh, so it's something to kind of compel the community to meet law enforcement halfway. And I think it will ensure because sometimes law enforcement don't always ask for these records. Not that they don't know where to ask, but maybe they don't ask for them thinking that we'll get them when the time comes. But you have to think they could be purged by then. You know, yeah. They're not there for your pleasure, you know, or for identification. They're there for dental treatment. And if you don't ask for them, the provider might not know you need them. Exactly. So this was, and That's I'll send you a copy of that too, if you can link it anywhere that uh, other states. I'm not saying it's necessary to pass that state law in all 50 states, but at least if they all look at it and realize why we have state law in some states, maybe some of the SOPs will change. You know, maybe maybe we'll look at it a little differently if people are just aware of it. Because I remember when we passing it in Tennessee, uh, some of the lawmakers that I had to talk to lobby for a better, better word. You know, it was, uh, I didn't realize. I had no idea that it was that bad. You know, so them knowing that going in just makes them aware of it in a lot of different decisions that they make. You know, and that's just important whether they were out of state law, at least they have some concept of the problem. And I yeah, think that that's a long way. No one is half the battle. Yeah, send me all the links you want to put on our. Okay. I'll put them in our show notes so people can have access to them. And, and I encourage people like I don't want to overwhelm the name of database by having fifty states pass state laws. If the states already doing a good job, but maybe just that conversation with some of your lawmakers or law enforcement, uh, you know, they may uh, be inspired to to do something profound without having to have a state law that makes them do it. Yeah, And that, that's always good. But I just think the conversations are things that need to be had. Maybe you should call your lawmaker and make sure they do know there is a NamUs uh, to make sure that uh, 
your local dentist knows that if you have records, it's not a violation of HIPAA law to call law enforcement and say, hey, I have this. Yeah. So, you know, conversations, communication and conversations is what we have to have. Exactly. I agree 100%. Well, Todd, I certainly appreciate you being on our little bitty show. Oh, yeah. I love it. Hey, all things grow, buddy. It is. And I, I mean, I reached out to you. I didn't know if you would do this or not. And man, you've you've welcomed me with open arms and just opened up your story to me. And man, this is awesome. Hey, the, 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 I've learned hillbillies are powerful people. Well, <laughs> can be, so. Dale and I are just a couple local North Carolina boys yep. that love uh, true crime and true crime stories. And so this is what we do. Well, back when we first identified Tent Girl, and this is the last comment I'll make, but CBS 48 Hours was covering it. And I remember when they were opening up the story, uh, of all places, Tennessee, the tip came from, and it's just like they were just appalled at, like, it's not the fact that the case was solved, it's somebody in Tennessee did it. They had a computer. And then of <laughs> all people, a farm boy, you know, so it's just like they were like, this guy can write and he can read. And I know they didn't mean it in that way, but looking at it from today's standard, it's just like, wow, was the amazing thing was that I had a brain at all was that is was that what was amazing to you was that that i was a farmer with a and i'm not a farmer but a southerner a hillbilly of you know a country person that had a computer and knew how to use it yeah so uh you, you never underestimate the the country boy so exactly and you guys are doing a great thing i think you have an audience that might be very unique to some of the bigger platforms so you're going to get somebody that maybe it might be just a right person to hear it so i appreciate it well, thank you, Todd. Appreciate you being on the show, bud. All right. Holler at me again sometime. There's a lot of stories. All right, bud. Talk to you later. All right. Have a good day, man. Thank right. you. Yeah, once again, I want to thank Todd Matthews for being on the show, taking time out of his busy schedule to give us an interview and talk about what he does and and Tent Girl. I want to remind everybody, too, again, to keep Dale and his family in your thoughts and prayers as they get through COVID. And with all that being said, we're going to get out of here. I want everyone to be safe. Be careful and always be aware of your surroundings. Because as Dale says, the next episode could be about you. This is the Crack House Chronicles. <laughs>